Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I hate flying. I know, I know. They say air travel is safer than driving a car. And to the best of my knowledge, no one has ever crashed into a cloud. I don't completely freak out like William Shatner in that Twilight Zone with the monster on the wing of the plane, but I'm never completely comfortable on a plane either. I suppose it's partially because of that loss of control, the feeling that you're putting your life in the pilot's hands and in the hands of whatever aerodynamics wizardry went into building the plane itself. A skilled pilot is, of course, the best defense against the worst-case scenario, crashing. But what happens when someone else tries to seize control of the plane? The first reported skyjacking occurred in December 1929, when J. Howard Doc Sellis was flying a postal route for a Mexican company. While he was getting his plane ready on the runway in San Luis Potosi, Doc Sellis claimed that General Saturnino Cedillo, governor of the region and one of Pancho Villa's last remaining lieutenants, approached him with a gang of armed men and ordered him to take them to their chosen destination. General Cedillo guided him on a flight path that took them into the Mexican mountains where they landed on a desolate dirt road. Sellis thought it might be in his best interest not to ask what the men planned on doing in the remote region, and he never found out. Nor did he find out how the soldiers were planning on leaving the area. After being held for several hours at gunpoint, Sellis was eventually released and allowed to fly home. His career as a pilot remained pleasantly skyjacking free for the rest of his life. In the years that followed, skyjacking became a fairly regular occurrence until it reached its peak between 1968 and 1972, an era in which over 130 planes were commandeered by armed individuals. That was the so-called golden age of skyjacking, and the practice became so common that there was a period where it was occurring more than once a week. The most well-known skyjacking incident of all is that of the infamous D.B. Cooper, who in 1971 got away with $200,000 by making a daring mid-air jump with a parachute vanishing without a trace. I'll probably do a show on Cooper one day, but I wanted to tell you about another more recent skyjacking, one that you've probably never heard about, and one that involves a combination of bloody violence, heroism, and remarkable aviation skills so crazy, it's hard to believe it's all true. I'm Nate Hale, and I'll ask that you stow away your tray tables, put your seat into an upright position, and buckle up. It's going to be a bumpy flight. And this is The Conspirators. At 3 p.m. on April 7, 1994, FedEx Flight 705 was scheduled to depart for a routine flight from the company's home hub in Memphis, Tennessee, to San Jose, California. It was a beautiful spring day, with clear skies and nothing to indicate that the flight was going to be anything unusual. If all went according to schedule, it would be a 10-hour round trip. 
The flight crew was comprised of Captain David Saunders, First Officer Jim Tucker, and Flight Engineer Andy Peterson. Andy Peterson was the first man aboard the aircraft, and he was surprised to see that his seat in the cockpit was already occupied when he got there. A 42-year-old flight engineer named Auburn Calloway was already settled into the engineer station. He was wearing his full flight uniform and was initiating pre-flight procedures. Although it was not unusual for FedEx employees to hitch a ride on a regular flight, a practice called jump seating, it was a major breach of protocol for a passenger to interfere with normal flight procedures. Callaway had been scheduled to be part of the original crew for that flight, but because they had exceeded their flight time by one minute over what FAA regulations would allow, the crew had to be replaced by Captain Saunders, Tucker, and Peterson. But Callaway had big plans for that flight, and he wasn't about to allow anything or anyone to get in his way. Nobody called Auburn Callaway out for his unusual behavior, and the man gave up his seat to the actual flight engineer Andy Peterson without any explanation for what he was doing there. After Peterson got into the engineer's seat and began to prep the flight, he noticed something else odd. A circuit breaker that powered the cockpit voice recorder was switched off. He switched it back on, then stepped away from the cabin for a minute. When he returned, he noticed the switch was back in the off position. The cockpit voice recorder is essential on any flight in case of an accident. Federal aviation rules stipulate that the recorder must be operational at all times or the flight has to be canceled until the problem gets resolved. But canceling or delaying a FedEx flight is a costly decision. Plus, if there was a problem, it might mean they got grounded in San Jose, delaying their return home. Peterson decided to switch the circuit breaker back on once again and keep an eye on it. If the breaker switched off one more time, he'd have to report it to maintenance and ground the flight. Captain David Saunders and First Officer Jim Tucker arrived on board and began their own preparations for the flight. They exchanged pleasantries with Callaway. All three men knew it was odd that Callaway was dressed in his full company uniform but didn't question it. It was also strange that he didn't have a flight bag with him either. Callaway strapped himself into a jump seat aft of the cockpit. By his feet lay a guitar case, the only piece of luggage he'd brought with him. Inside the guitar case, unbeknownst to the crew, were two claw hammers, a pair of sledge mallets, a knife, and a spear gun. This was pre-9-11 and Callaway could have easily smuggled a handgun on board, but he chose only weapons that were unlikely to put any holes in the plane itself. The plane took off and less than 30 minutes later, when they were 19,000 feet in the air, Callaway set his plan into motion. Auburn Callaway took one of the claw hammers and silently slipped into the cockpit. With no hesitation, he swung first on Peterson, since he was closest to the door. He smashed the flight engineer several times in the head. Peterson let out a low whimper and slumped in his seat. Tucker turned to see what the commotion was about and Callaway bashed him in the skull as well, incapacitating him before he could react. Then Callaway turned on Captain Saunders and began swinging. Captain Saunders had a difficult time fighting back buckled into his seat while trying to maintain control of the airplane. Some of the blows glanced off him, but soon Callaway landed a vicious strike to the head that nearly knocked Saunders unconscious. Although Peterson and Tucker were both badly injured, they were both still alive, something Callaway hadn't counted on. Tuckerson and Peterson struggled to get up out of their seats and grab Callaway. 
Calloway realized the hammer alone wasn't going to be sufficient, and he backed out of the cockpit and went to the galley to get the spear gun from the guitar case. He came back and pointed the spear gun at the flight crew. He ordered them all to sit back down or he'd kill them. What the crew didn't know was that Calloway had already long since decided they were all going to die. Peterson, who was suffering from tunnel vision and a terrible ringing in his ears, lunged forward and grabbed the spear gun with all the strength he could muster, hoping to prevent it from firing. At the same time, Tucker got an idea of his own to try to stop the attacker. He yanked hard in the steering column, putting the plane into a steep climb. Peterson and Calloway, still wrestling over the spear gun, were suddenly thrown backwards out of the cockpit along with Captain Saunders, who had unstrapped himself to help subdue the madman. Peterson, Saunders, and Calloway tumbled to the back of the plane as it pitched upwards. Peterson was in bad shape. His skull was fractured. His temporal artery was severed, and he was rapidly losing blood. Captain Saunders was in a little better condition, but so far Calloway remained completely uninjured. He was also highly skilled in martial arts, and he was beginning to win the fight. Tucker was now alone in the cockpit, and the only one in command of the aircraft. He was an ex-Navy combat flight instructor, and he was about to push the DC-10 into some maneuvers it was never designed to do. He began tilting the plane up in its side, jostling the three men around in the galley. Then he flipped the plane in the other direction, turning it almost completely upside down into a barrel roll in an effort to keep Calloway off balance. And it worked, at least temporarily. The trio tumbled around in the back of the plane like rolling dice. The fight continued with the men now on the roof of the airplane, but Calloway was enraged and determined to kill every last one of them. He got hold of the hammer again and he managed to get in another blow to the captain's skull that stunned him. Tucker could hear the men struggling. Behind him, Calloway was screaming bloody murder. He decided to take the airplane into another dangerous maneuver. He pushed down on the stick, sending the plane into a steep dive. It was a dangerous gambit, one that Tucker hoped would work to give Saunders and Peterson the edge over Calloway. What the first officer didn't realize, though, was that the initial blow had fractured his skull and embedded shards of bone deep into his brain. As the airplane dove, he began to realize that he had lost feeling and motor control over the right side of his body. Suddenly, he was forced to fly the airplane one-handed. All around him, the cockpit alarms blared. Through the windshield, he could see the earth rushing up at him. The airplane blew past its maximum safe speed of 430 miles per hour and kept increasing. By the time the airflow gauge reached 530, the plane became unresponsive and could no longer be pulled out of the dive. The stabilizers were shuddering, and Tucker knew that if they kept going at max speed the way they were, the plane would begin to fall apart. As the plane hurtled toward Earth, Tucker glanced over and realized the throttle was still on full. It had been that way since takeoff. He let go of the controls with the only hand he had that still functioned and yanked the throttle back. It didn't slow the plane much, but along with the wind resistance that was causing the wings to shudder violently, it was just enough for him to pull back on the yoke and lift the plane back up out of the dive. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. 
Back in the airplane's galley, the battle raged on. By now, massive blood loss had almost completely incapacitated Peterson. Captain Saunders wrestled with Calloway over the hammer. He finally managed to rip it out of Calloway's grip and began hitting back with it. Calloway tried to ward him off, but the captain kept at it and soon Calloway was down and no longer moving. Disoriented and struggling to remain conscious, Tucker radioed the Memphis Center and alerted them to the emergency. The air traffic controller was stunned by what Tucker was telling him, and he had to ask him to repeat what he just said. Tucker requested directions back to the airport and that they should have an ambulance and a SWAT team waiting. Once the plane had stabilized enough, even though he was semi-paralyzed at this point, Tucker activated the autopilot and got up to help his crewmen in back. Captain Saunders, who was still in the best shape physically of the flight crew, returned to his seat to try to guide them back to Memphis. Meanwhile, Calloway was beginning to regain consciousness. Tucker picked up the spear gun on his way to the galley and kept it pointed at Calloway. But since half his body wasn't working right, his grip slipped and Calloway took that opportunity to try to grab the gun away from him. Tucker and Peterson were in no condition for a fight, so all they could do was throw their combined weight on Calloway and try to pin him to the floor. When he heard the struggle start up again, Captain Saunders had to put the autopilot back on and try to help subdue Calloway again. Tucker managed to get his hands on the hammer again and hit Calloway again with it, knocking him back out. Captain Saunders, dazed and blind in one eye, got back to his seat as quickly as he could. By now he realized the airplane was coming in too fast and too steep for them to safely land at their destination. The plane was still loaded with fuel, and a crash at this speed would almost certainly end in a massive explosion. In a typical emergency situation, it's recommended that the flight crew dump any excess fuel in order to minimize a potential explosion. But since Saunders was all alone in the cockpit, the controls to dump the fuel were out of reach, and he didn't have time to get back up. Realizing Callaway could wake back up at any moment, the captain made a split-second decision to change his approach to a different, longer runway. It was the right move. Calloway regained consciousness and began groggily making another move for the hammer while they were less than 300 feet above the ground. The captain extended the flaps and dropped the landing gear. The plane hit the runway hard and they skidded to a stop just 900 feet short of the end of the line. Police and medics were on the scene waiting. The crew dropped the emergency ramp and the medical techs and a police officer had to climb up to get on board. Peterson and Tucker were both in critical condition and in urgent need of medical assistance. Over the next few days, investigators would piece together Calloway's plan. It turns out things weren't going well for Calloway in his personal and professional life. His marriage had ended four years earlier, and it seemed that his career was about to implode as well. He had been due to appear at a hearing the next day after the attack where it's likely he would have lost his job after it came out that he had fudged his resume and greatly exaggerated his flight experience in the U.S. Navy. Without his job, Calloway would never have been able to afford to send his kids to college as he'd been planning. Feeling as if he had nothing left to lose, Calloway came up with a plan to take his own life, get revenge against the company, and to set his family up for the future. His plan was to turn off the flight recorder, bludgeon the flight crew to death, then crash the plane into FedEx headquarters. That way, the injuries suffered by the flight crew would just be chalked up to the crash, and the tools, including the spear gun, would be thought of as just part of the crew's luggage. After, Calloway's children would receive his life insurance and any payouts from settlements with the company. 
Before he'd left his home that day, Calloway had left his last will and testament out in his bed. Which, in retrospect, seems like it would have only raised suspicions about what he planned to do. But no one ever claimed that criminals were completely logical. Calloway had originally planned on being part of the original flight crew, with two other crew members besides himself. One of the original flight crew was a woman, and being a skilled martial artist, Calloway felt he'd be easily able to overpower the two of them. But after the crew was replaced by Captain Saunders, Tucker, and Peterson, Calloway had to improvise. Even with the change in plans, he might have pulled it off, too. Even after Peterson discovered the cockpit voice recorder had been tampered with, all he had to do was wait 30 minutes for the tape to run out. With a little timing, all the evidence would have erased itself. Calloway is currently serving two life sentences in a California penitentiary without possibility of parole. The Airline Pilots Association awarded Captain Saunders, Jim Tucker, and Andy Peterson a gold medal for heroism, the highest award a civilian pilot can receive. But although all three men eventually recovered from their injuries, they were never able to be medically certified to fly a commercial flight again. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. If you enjoy the show, please help support it by downloading it on iTunes and leaving us a positive review. We're also available on Stitcher and the Google Play Store, as well as our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks as always for listening.